0: So a bit of a disclaimer, we're just looking at one dimension uh, of, of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Part of the implications of, of Christmas, um, of the stuff that we've been thinking about the last couple of weeks. I want to lead into it by talking uh, very quickly about the goat. Daisy, that's not the goat that I meant. Um, no, Daisy had nothing to do with it. I'm talking about Uh, Actually, Micah, maybe you can help me here or Jack. When I talk about the GOAT, I'm actually talking about the greatest of all time. I'm talking about the greatest of all time, not that um, weird-eyed, horny guy on the first screen. So, I'm talking about someone who um, received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2016. For his achievements in his field, he was ten-time All NBA first-team player. Um, he was the NBA champion six times, five times an NBA Finals MVP, five times an NBA Most Valuable Player. Is that your hand up? Because you know who I'm talking about, Micah. There's quite a few people that know. Don't give it away yet, boys. Uh, What else did he achieve? Uh, 14 times an NBA All-Star, three times an NBA All-Star game MVP. The list goes on. Uh, That's just about a fifth of his rap sheet. Um, I'm talking about the true GOAT, uh, and um, I'm not... A huge basketball fan. I can appreciate it. I, I've admired this man's work in the past, but I know there's lots of basketballers here. Uh, you can see them. I've, I've pulled you guys in already. I am not talking about this guy. This is not the goat. I wasn't. I couldn't. This guy is so obscure, I couldn't even really get a good picture of him. But one of the reasons why there's not a good picture of him is why would you expect to find a really great picture of someone who is not the GOAT. But this man who's not the GOAT, the greatest of all time, thanks, Micah, uh, has the claim of probably beating the GOAT in a one-on-one game of basketball more times than anybody else. In fact, there is some suggestion that he may have even beat the GOAT one-on-one more times than the GOAT beat him. This man's name is Larry Jordan. And there is a picture of Larry with his younger brother, the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan. Now, just by that picture, you probably get some sort of clue as to why one of them ended up the goat and one of them uh, not so much. Uh, basketball is not a kind game on the vertically challenged. But Larry Jordan, um, Michael Jordan has spoken about the fact that he wouldn't be the person that he is, he probably wouldn't be the goat if it wasn't for his older and much shorter brother, Larry. Now, um, this is uh, one of those, there's a few lessons in life we can draw from the story of Larry and Michael Jordan. One of them, Iggy, is don't pick on your younger brother. Uh, LAUGHTER But one of them is that uh, older brothers do something for you. Apparently, uh, Larry was a very gifted basketballer, just not tall enough uh, to really make a career out of it. But the story that Michael tells is that they used to play one-on-one in the driveway, at school, every morning, every afternoon, every lunchtime. And for a good deal of his life, Larry can you believe it, was better than the goat. And so as a younger brother, what do you do? That's the benchmark, isn't it? You just keep aiming for that. You just keep chipping away at your older brother. You hope eventually to just get it over on him. And um, I put this up as as a picture, as a sort of segue into thinking about a way that the Bible talks about who Jesus is. And it's one of those um, potentially sort of provocative-sounding pictures of who Jesus is. Um, But it's in there, so I'm happy to go there. If you want to have a look at your Bibles as I go through this, we're looking at Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 18. There's going to be Christians uh, all around the world looking at this particular verse this morning. And so I thought it would be a good one for us. To have a look at. And if you want to give this little talk a title, uh, you could think about it in terms of the title, Our Brother, God. I told you it would sound a bit provocative. But here it is. Verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2 says this, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. The Greek word there is adelphoi. Uh, Your Bible might just translate it as brothers, but it's a universal that means men and women. So the family of God, Jesus' brothers and sisters. One of the reasons why that might make us a little bit uncomfortable, this idea of talking about Jesus as brother, is because in the person of Jesus, we have received this great mystery. We encounter this great mystery of someone who is, at both at times at once, God and man. Right, So uh, Jesus is divine, he is, he is the creator of the universe, he is the everlasting God, um, and yet we've been celebrating this mystery that he also comes as a human being. Uh, theologians use the term hypostatic union, I don't know if you'll ever need to use that, but there it is. This person who has these natures, divine and human, at the same time, and we get a little bit nervous, quite rightly, when we venture into this territory because it is true that you can go wrong. You can talk too much about Jesus' divine nature and neglect his human nature. And in doing that, you do some sort of violence or damage to who he was. You're not telling the full truth about who Jesus is. Conversely, you can overemphasize Jesus' humanity and neglect His divinity, and I'd say if you went to a church, if you came to this church, and we were just always talking about Jesus's humanity and not his divinity, you could sort of uh, be excused for writing an email and going, "What's going on here? Are you guys giving us the full picture?" But what I want to suggest this morning is that if you can't focus on Jesus's humanity uh, at Christmas time, when can you? And it's kind of implied the wonder. The reason why we make such a big deal about Jesus being human is that he was God as well. If he was just another baby born in first century Palestinian uh, Israel, we might not make such a big deal about it. But this is a once in history event. This is a marvel. This is a kind of mystery that I think we could talk about and think about all year, year after year. And there are many people who do do that. But... All of this to say, this is scriptural language. So, the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus as if you're here as a disciple of Jesus, as if you're here as someone who identifies with Jesus, if you're here as someone who thinks about themselves maybe in terms of being a Christian, then you're here as a brother or sister. Of Jesus. You can also find this language, just to uh, make sure I'm not finding one heresy in the Bible, Paul uses this language in his letter to the church in Rome, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. That's us. St. Athanasius picks up on This idea, when he's trying to understand exactly what is going on in this amazing person, Jesus, he says, he became what we are, that we might become what he is. Again, kind of challenging language, but this is a language of orthodoxy. It's basically saying that Jesus invites us into the divine life. He makes a way for us to come into the community of God. And many Christians throughout history have actually thought about salvation in those terms, more than the ones that we might more regularly hear, that it's about Jesus making a way for us to live in that divine community with God for eternity. Anyway, you're on holidays, so you've got some time to think about whether you agree with that or not. Um, And part of the way that Jesus does that, our brother, God, Jesus does that, is that this passage talks about is he comes into our condition as human beings and he occupies the very basement of what it means to be human. What I mean by that, and we'll go to the verse again in a second because it talks about this, is however low your experience of humanity has gotten, whatever you've suffered, whatever's been done against you, whatever opportunities you've missed out on, whatever griefs you have... Jesus has shared them. You'll see here in chapter 10, to go to it again, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God should make the pioneer of their salvation, that's you, that's all his brothers and sisters, perfect through what he suffered. Right? So in our brother Jesus, we have someone who knows what it's like when life doesn't go. As we'd imagine, we have someone who knows what it feels like to grieve, to be betrayed, to suffer physically, to be tempted, to be misunderstood. As bad as it's gotten for you, or me, or any of our brothers and sisters throughout history, Jesus gets it. But that's not the whole picture Because Jesus comes through that suffering. He comes through everything that can go wrong in life for human beings. And he comes out on top. So it's almost as though a kind of cosmic um, chemistry experiment was going on with human beings. And um, let's say God creates us all like little test-tube babies in the lab, and the devil comes along when uh, the lab is supposed to be shut, and he says, I bet I can turn all of these humans against their Creator. I bet all I have to do is just drop a little bit of pain in the vial, drop a a little bit of suffering and betrayal into the test-tube, Maybe I take away their material comfort. I send challenges their way. Because what happens is suffering begets suffering, right? You've heard that saying, hurt people, hurt people. That's kind of the way of the world. Um, we carry, even the most well adjusted and sort of healed of us, we carry junk with us, don't we? Um, We, I mean, I have perfect parents, they're here in the room, so I have to say that, so I don't have any baggage from them, but you've probably seen uh, these kind of repeating patterns uh, before. Something that your dad did to you that wasn't like the perfect way to parent you, maybe even abuse, and then you find yourself doing that same thing to your kids, right? Or maybe you get hurt in the first serious relationship, romantic relationship that you have, and you take that on to someone else. But when it comes to the little tube that's got Jesus in it, the baby Jesus, he's not always a baby, is he? But it's got Jesus in it. You drop in some pain, drop in some suffering, drop in some betrayal. Nothing happens, right? The fullness of the image of God in Jesus Christ does not change. That's a game changer. If the enemy of all humanity, if the enemy of your life, your eternal destiny, realises that hum- humanity is not entirely corruptible, that, su- that a human being can come through, that his plan to bring it all down has a flaw, that's a game changer. And... Verse 10 speaks to that too, so I've highlighted in yellow a different part this time, it says it was fitting that God should make the pioneer of our salvation perfect. A human being goes through everything that human beings go through and instead of being dragged into the system of suffering, of hurt people, hurting people, of the way that that mars and warps the image of God in us, that turns our hearts away from God, that corrupts our imagination. If one comes through that without that corruption, without being sucked into that cycle of suffering, the game has changed. And so Jesus operate, uh, sort of has occupied the very basement of what it means to be a human being. However bad it gets, he knows. Whatever you've been through, he knows. He, he's not condescending as an older brother at all. He might beat you in a game of one-on-one, but he knows that it's just because you're still learning, you're still growing. Whatever you've been through, he gets it. But he comes out the other side perfect and makes a way for us to follow I think it's really interesting that uh, the writer of Hebrews chooses this word, pioneer, in verse 10. He says, Jesus, the pioneer of your salvation. As Jesus' younger brothers and sisters, he is the pioneer of your salvation. This is um, a sculpture from uh, the city that Cheryl and I lived in, in Canada, Vancouver. And it depicts a moment in 1954 where two competing runners did what was once thought to be unimaginable. One of them is an Australian named John Landy. Anyone in the room actually know? Oh, there's all sporting metaphors this morning, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just do this to keep my job with Graham because he's a... Uh I first wrote this sermon with all, uh, all metaphors from the arts, but I submitted it to him and he said, change them to sporting metaphors. So John Landy. John Landy uh, famously uh, was going to win this race when he looked over his left shoulder to check that he was still in front of the person coming second, and the person coming second whizzed by on the right-hand side. The person coming second... Up until this moment, who eventually overtook John Landy was Roger Bannister, the first recorded four-minute mile. So this is a picture of Roger Bannister crossing the finishing line in Oxford, 1954, early in 1954, and he achieved what had once been thought to be impossible, running a mile in less than four minutes. He had two paces to help him do it. Just a couple months later, at the Commonwealth Games in Vancouver, John Landy also ran a sub-four-minute mile, but he didn't run it as fast as Roger Bannister. See, the thing that pioneers do for us is they make the impossible possible. It's quite something to do at first, but once one person has done it, others follow. Recently, Um, I took Iggy to the base of Mount Beewa. I hadn't climbed it in years. And when we got to, I think it's called like Chicken's something, Chicken's Wall. Uh, If anyone's climbed Mount Beewa before, there's quite a steep cliff that goes... um, as far as you can basically see. Uh, And it's the moment when many people who intend to climb Mount Biwa find that they no longer have the desire to climb Mount Biwa. And of course, last time I did it, I was 17, super fit, and with a not completely formed brain. Um, And so I got there with my uh, seven-year-old son. There was a couple of German backpackers um, walking behind us, both girls. And when we got there, and we were just slightly in front of them, I wasn't sure whether they admired the fact that I was you know, going to give my son a, a significant experience or they were thinking that I was doing something terribly neglectful. Um, but I, had I not climbed that mountain before on getting to uh, the base of it with Ignatius that morning, I don't think I would have taken Iggy up. But I knew that I'd done it before, and I knew that it could be done. And there's lots of things in life like that. We can look at a challenge that has never been overcome before, and it can seem impossible. But then one person does it, and it opens the way for many others. The thing about Jesus is he didn't just run. And there's another picture of Bannister and Landy about to cross the finishing line. He didn't just run a sub-four-minute mile. In fact, I'm pretty sure he didn't run a sub-four-minute mile. Uh, He did something greater. He conquered sin and death. And so as the pioneering older brother, he shows us that there is a path behind him. Verse 14 Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So this picture of Jesus as the pioneer, as the pioneering older brother, does a couple things for us. It it defends. It shows us that our greatest enemy has been defeated. So Jesus talks about... I mean, the devil's a bit of a mystery to me. Um, thankfully, I've never seen him. Um, but I think I've seen him at work. And Jesus talks about the devil as a, as a real being. Uh, this passage talks about the devil being defeated. The devil, it says, the enemy... Uh, The one who holds the power of death. One of the names uh, for the devil in scripture is Satan, who means the great accuser. The one who accuses us of the things that we've done wrong. The one who, like in Job, maybe goes to God and accuses us before God and says, Brett, he's not worthy, surely. Surely you can't call him one of your children. Sorry to pick on you, Brett. I could have said it of anyone. It was harder to say of you than anyone else, so that's why I picked you. Um, But Jesus shows us that those accusations are lies, right? If God didn't want us as children, he wouldn't have sent an older brother for us. He wouldn't have come in the form of a human being. That's an act of love, that's an act of bringing us into the, this divine family that I'm talking about. So Jesus, as our pioneering older brother, shows up the lie of our greatest enemy. That God doesn't love us. That God would never accept us into his family. And he also conquers death so that we need not fear it. Leo Tolstoy said in War and Peace that man cannot possess anything as long as he fears death, but to him who does not fear it, everything belongs. It's kind of a riff on Jesus' saying, uh, what would it profit a person to gain the whole world but to lose their soul? By following Jesus, by living a life of pure love, emancipated from fear of death, We can do anything. There's nothing stopping us from coming fully into God's story, living self-sacrificially. The opposite of fear, actually, is love, living completely out of love, uninhibited by fear. And the history of Christianity is a history of people who have lived in exactly that way. They've said, yes, I may die for taking the good news to this part of the world, but Jesus has conquered death, there is a way through death, so what have I got to fear? I can do it. And in so many little ways, we can follow along that path. We can live our life free of the judgement of our peers for the sake of compassion, whether that's in the playground or in our offices. We don't have to fear that we'll get a reputation for not being professional enough for not um, hanging with the right people, um, because we know, ultimately, that's not as important as the mission that Jesus gives us. We have nothing to fear we're not going to miss out. So Jesus is a pioneer for us. He's perfect as a human being, which makes a way for us past these things, the one who would accuse us, the fear of death. Finally, Hebrews 2 also talks about Jesus as a merciful and faithful high priest. For surely it is not angels he helps, verse 16 says, but Abraham's descendants, that's Human beings. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we're talking about here someone who understands both contexts. ...as a high priest. God, um, as much as he has shown us that he loves us, is quite other to us. Um, I don't know how one would go about acting in the presence of God, but Jesus does, because he is God. He's got a foot in both camps, as it were. It's a little bit like, um, I don't know if anyone's ever travelled to a country where you just have no idea what's going on culturally... Um, you don't know your way around at all and then you hear someone speaking English and you go, I wonder if this person can kind of help me. And if you're really lucky, it's someone who speaks both languages, right? And they can kind of go, well, what you need to do is, you know, follow this road, go up there, there's someone who can help you. Um, Kind of like the role of an ambassador, right? You find yourself in trouble in a foreign land There's someone there that knows the ins and outs of that culture, of their legal system. Someone who actually is of the same nationality as you. And it's kind of their job to help you. That's a bit like what Jesus is like as our high priest. He understands the divine context. He understands the human context. He's committed to helping us across both contexts. Someone who has special rights as well. Nikki Gumbel in uh, the Alpha series tells this story that um, emerges out of the Civil War. Uh, I personally am not sure if it's apocryphal, but it it helps to illustrate a point for us. And the story goes that there's a a soldier who's one of a number of brothers. His um, father has died in the war, and then uh, all of his brothers have died in the war. And he's concerned for his mother, that his mother is trapped out on a piece of land, has no way of providing for herself. And so he happens to find himself in DC and someone said, you should go to the White House. I understand that President Lincoln is a, is a, is a compassionate man and there are historical incidents, it would seem, of, of Lincoln um, sort of pardoning people from duty in these circumstances. And so he goes... Up to the White House, he tries to explain to those uh, who are sort of on security there his situation, that he's come to sort of throw himself at the feet of the president and say, please be compassionate on my mother. There's no one to look after her. And the guards turn this soldier away. And so he's considering what to do in the park, despondent, when he's approached by a small boy. And the boy says to him, you know what's what's going on. He can tell that this soldier's um, upset, that there's something going on here, and so the man says to the boy, "This is my situation. I've come to see the president. I'm um, the only surviving child of a widow. Uh, I want to go home and look after her." The boy says, "Come with me," and so he leads the soldier up to the gates of the White House. And where they're greeted by the guard personnel there, the boy says hello and the man and the boy walk through past the checkpoint. The boy leads him up to the front door of the White House there that you can see the image of. Again, the boy greets the guards and the guards allow the boy and the soldier through the door. The boy leads the guard to the Oval Office And walks in, seeing President Lincoln, and says, Dad, you need to hear this man's story. Jesus, as our high priest, is like that. He gives us access. He opens a way for us. We can depend on the fact that he has a kind of inside track there, if you like. I'm going to close, so I'll get the, the band up. I, I want to end with this picture of uh, Larry and Mike. Um, now, I realise that the, the metaphor sort of breaks down a little bit in uh, this picture because um, <laughs> Jesus is the goat, Right? Um, Jesus is not the younger brother in Hebrews, Jesus is the older brother, and I'm not the goat as the younger brother. Um, But of course, any metaphor that you lean into heavily begins to break down, but there's something that I kind of like about it. As I look at that picture, I think about uh, a verse from Isaiah 53, uh, where speaking of Jesus, the prophet says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance, that we would desire him. I think there, there's a truth in the fact that the way that Jesus leads us, the way that Jesus stretches us, is down, you know? There's something humble about how Jesus came into the world. The work that he wants to do in our lives is not necessarily to make us six foot six MVPs in a kind of worldly sense, but to make us people who can carry this gift, this message of love that Jesus embodies into the world. And so in a sense, Jesus is our older brother in this humble, peaceful way to make us older brothers to, to others, Right. And as I was reflecting on this thought and reflecting on the year that's been, um, I was flicking through some of the pictures from Sunday, thinking about our life as a community and thinking another way that the metaphor breaks down is it's never just one-on-one. I mean, Jesus, I'm sure, would spend as much time as we needed one-on-one. But it's always for the purpose of releasing us, right? It's always for the purpose of bringing more brothers and sisters onto the court. If I can stretch the metaphor a little bit further. And so we live in families. We live in communities. We have relationships with a multiplicity of people. There's maybe some who aren't even on the court yet. But Jesus wants to get on the court. Jesus wants to be an older brother too. And I simply want to leave you with this thought as you think back on the year or the decade that's been and maybe you begin to consider the year, the decades ahead. Have you let him be that brother? Have you lived as though Jesus is your brother? Do you grasp that reality? Because as we've seen, it's in Scripture. I think about Mike and Larry probably shared a room, ate the same meals most of their lives, went to school together. Jesus wants to be like that to you if you'll just let him. I think it's a truth that, you know, every time we sleep, every time we eat, every time we work and play, He wants to be with us and He can be. But have you opened your heart as much as possible and your mind as much as possible to the fact that He just wants to be with you? Sure, He might want to stretch you. He wants to live with you. He wants uh, to get down into the basement of your life because He understands Your challenges, your problems, are you inviting him in? And then when it comes to your aspirations, those things that you dream about becoming, everything that you're aiming your life at achieving, have you invited him into that as well? A simple thought. Have you let Jesus be your older brother? Is there any sense for 2020 and beyond that you can let him be more so.